Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, uh, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. Thanks, Maddie. Hey, good morning, guys. It's good to see everybody. Um, if we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. It's good to have you with us this morning. Hey, uh, I want to do just some family business real quickly before we jump in and get after it in the sermon. Um, it's, it's really exciting what's happening in the life of our church right now. Just in case you're curious, uh, church growth is not the goal. And growth is often in many circles, that's the thing that's sought after, that's the thing that's fought for. And if we're talking about growth and numbers, that's just really not our thing. That's not our goal. If it was, we wouldn't preach on head coverings, right, for a whole sermon. We wouldn't do, we wouldn't do a series through the book of 1 Corinthians if we were trying to see more and more people uh, coming to the church as the big win. Formation and discipleship and clearly communicating the gospel and living as the outpost of the kingdom of God, uh, multiplying gospel communities that love God, love people, push back darkness, that's really our goal, right? And, and yet, there are times where the church does grow in numbers, and that's something to celebrate. Uh, if you look at where we are last year, uh, we have, versus today and last year, we have about 100 more people that are gathering with us on Sundays regularly than we did this time last year. A lot of that's in our kids' ministry. Some is with our teenagers and students, and then a lot of that is also adults. So it's really fun and exciting, and you've already heard about one way that you can jump in and participate, which is to serve in our kids' ministry, but I want to throw out one more way that I need the members of this church to rally behind and jump in. So there's a lot that we're doing right, and there's a lot of areas that we're growing as a, as a congregation, but one of the areas where we are not growing is in our tithing. We're actually, not only are we not on track of where we had hoped to be by the first quarter of this year, uh, not only are we not on track of what we had been planning for and praying for, but actually we're behind where we were this same time last year, but we have more adults. We have 100 more people coming, and yet our giving is about 4% down from where it even was last year. Uh, and, and, and if you're not a member of this church, just ignore me, right? You don't have to listen to this. Just tune me out right now. But if you consider Frontline Home, man, I need you to uh, really, and I'm inviting you and I'm calling you to step into this with us. Um, we see giving, tithing as so essential to everything that we're doing. We just prayed for all these pastors that we're going to be hosting next week. 35 different churches are going to be represented, uh, and that's a way that we're going to serve. Um, what we do with our kids' ministry on Sundays, the way we're serving for the poor in our city throughout the week, pushback darkness grants that you guys are applying for, all of that comes from your giving. And it is how we fuel ministry and how we fuel missions. So a couple of things. If you're a member of this church, this is the church that you would consider home. Remember, you're no longer a renter. You're an owner. You're a part of this thing with us. And the way that we want to think, think about giving is, is it joyful? Is it sacrificial? And is it regular, right? Is it joyful? Is it sacrificial? And is it regular? And if you don't know where to start, I want to recommend just start with 10%. Start with 10% of what you make and offer that back to the Lord so that we can figure out how to serve people in our city and beyond. And the second thing is if you're a part of this church and you're, you're actually in a place where financially you are hurting, you are in a lot of need, you are in a place where you're like, I need to be cared for, 
reach out to us. That's literally why we're here. That's, what we do. That's why we do what we do. So if you're in a place where you're like, I actually can't give, but I actually need other people to help me right now, then tell us because we want to serve you. We want to find ways to, to come alongside of you financially and to come alongside of you in any way possible so that you can be taken care of. Amen? So that's what we're calling you to do. Just help me evaluate because we're not where we had hoped to be. And not only are we not where we hoped to be, we're actually behind where we really should have been and where we were last year. So I know that that can be an awkward, like, especially if this is your second Sunday back, you're like, oh, one of those churches, right? Well, maybe, I don't know. You stick around and see, and, uh, and, and hopefully we're not one of those churches, but we're glad that you're with us. All right, hey, I am, uh, I'm excited about today. We are essentially taking a week break before we jump back into 1 Corinthians. And today what I want to try to do is lay some groundwork for uh, chapters 12 through 14 in 1 Corinthians where we're about to be. So with that in mind, I want to invite you, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to be in Acts chapter 1. I want to read the first 11 verses. The words will be on the screen. The word of God speaks to us. And the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can grab a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for just the the joy of sitting not only under your word, but under your kingship, your authority, your your resurrected life that right now you are alive and you're working in human history. And I pray that that would be felt today in fresh ways. God, I pray today as we look at the kingdom of God and what that means for the ways that you break into our world, I pray that you would make sense of something that's been convoluted for a lot of people and that you would shape us around this reality of your kingdom. So would you come and bring your kingdom in new, fresh, real ways. We long for your return. We want you to come back and fix this world and make all things new. And in the meantime, we pray that you would build resilience into your people, that you would build a a type of gospel life in us that is just unexplainable apart from the resurrection. So come and move in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, did you know that the church has a calendar? It has a calendar. And, and I, I don't mean like Frontline has a church calendar. We do have a church calendar. Next week's we're, you know, we're doing baby dedications and group connect. Uh, the first week of June is student camp. That's all on our church calendar. But 
I'm talking about the global church has a calendar. The global church has a calendar that's designed to actually help you and I rehearse and remember the story of God and the story of our salvation again and again and again, but from fresh ways. And if you've been a part of Frontline, then you're probably familiar with certain aspects of the church calendar, things like Advent, Uh, leading up to Christmas or things like Lent and Good Friday and Easter. And there's these elements where we pause and remember certain aspects of our story of salvation. But one of the most neglected, least interacted with aspects of the church calendar, at least from my perspective, is something called Eastertide, which we happen to be in right now. And I even love the name Eastertide because it's sort of like the resurrection, Easter, is this, this tidal wave event that's hit our lives, and we're kind of living in the wake of the resurrection even still. But Eastertide, more properly, is this really interesting, awkward season between the resurrection of Jesus and Pentecost uh, that we celebrate, which is, I think, around 50 days from Easter Sunday. So it's really interesting that there's this set-apart time where we remember that Jesus didn't just die on a cross and he didn't just rise from the dead, but he did something strategic during his 40 days on earth before his ascension. And then when he ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down as the king over every king, he began to pour out his Holy Spirit on the church. So that's what we remember in Easter's, this, this powerful event that has happened. Now, there's, there's a connection here that I want you to see between Easter Sunday, the fact that Jesus is alive today, the fact that Jesus is not on vacation, he's not hiding out, he's not you know, mysteriously absent, but Jesus is actually in heaven continuing his work on earth, doing that through the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to let the cat out of the bag that Frontline Church is a charismatic church. Now, when I say charismatic church, I don't mean like, you know, if what you typically think of with like the big hair and the makeup and, you know, taking up 37 offerings to fund our private jets out back. That's not the type of charismatic church that we are. When we say charismatic, what we mean is we believe that the Holy Spirit not only is real and active, but he continues his work in and through the church. That everything you read about in the book of Acts continues to happen even still today. That all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, even the ones that we don't really understand very well, are still active and available for all Christians in all places today. We believe that. We believe the Bible clearly teaches that. Right? We want to be a Bible-honoring church that doesn't just love theology and doctrine and the Word of God, but if we're really valuing theology, we're also going to value the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to show you today is the connection between the resurrection of Jesus and the kingdom of God and what that means for the ongoing activity of the Holy Spirit in and through the church. So with that in mind, I want you to think about this question with me. If you only had 40 days left on earth, If you only had 40 days left on earth, what would you want to talk about? What would be your primary focus? Who would you go to and what would you say if you knew you only had 40 days left on planet earth? Now think about that from Jesus' perspective. If Jesus only had 40 days left on earth, what would he want to talk about? And we don't have to wonder because Acts 1 verse 3 literally tells us the answer to this question. Notice, it says that Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering, after his death, and after his resurrection by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days, and notice this important line, and speaking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Jesus took 40 days 
to talk about the kingdom of God with his disciples before his ascension. Last conversations all about the kingdom of God. Now, this is not a one-off for Jesus. If you look carefully at his earthly life and ministry, what you're going to observe is that Jesus is constantly and consistently talking about the kingdom of God. At the very beginning of his ministry, we read this in Mark chapter 1. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, or other translations read, the kingdom of God has arrived. Repent and believe in the gospel. At the very end of his ministry, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. Matthew 24, Jesus says this. He says, in this gospel of the kingdom, this good news announcement of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Fast forward in the story, you go to the book of Acts, go all the way to the very end of the book of Acts, and it summarizes the Apostle Paul's ministry in Rome where he was, he was in house arrest for two years. And notice what it says in Acts 28 about the summary of what Paul talked about. It says, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You can distill down the entire earthly life and ministry of Jesus, his teaching, his announcement, what he was talking about, and what the early church was talking about, the Apostle Paul's entire story, into a story about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And all of that should really beg the question for you and I to wrestle with, what is the kingdom of God? Now, if you're anything like me, I grew up in church, I grew up in a really good church, I didn't know anything about the kingdom of God. I don't think I ever heard a sermon about the kingdom of God or probably actually more accurately, I wasn't ever paying attention if there was a sermon about the kingdom of God, but I didn't know. And often when we today as Christians talk about the kingdom of God, at best, it's a little bit fuzzy, isn't it? At at best, what comes to mind is kind of a blank slate. We're not really familiar with this concept or this idea of the kingdom of God. And I wanna make the case that it's because you and I have actually inherited a reductionistic version of Christianity. Now, even if you grew up in a good church like I did with really well-meaning Sunday school teachers like I most often had, uh, they did more right than wrong, but I remember one instance as a little kid, I don't remember how old I was, but my Sunday school teacher at the time, she got down on her knees with her class and she's like, kids, y'all don't wanna go to hell when you die, do you? And we were all like, oh my gosh, no, that sounds scary. I don't wanna go to hell when I die. And she's like, well, what about heaven? And we're like, sweet, that sounds great, way better of an option. What do I gotta do? And she's like, well, Jesus loves you and he died on a cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins so that when you die, you could go to be with Jesus in heaven one day too. And that was sort of what I imagined as the whole story of Christianity. How many of you, if you grew up in church, would say, that about sums it up for me too? Raise your hand. Like, that's that's around what I heard as well. If not, praise be to God. Hopefully you got more details than I did. But here's the problem with that. It's not that that's not true or that there's not elements of truth there. The problem is that it's missing whole entire chunks that really matter. And if you lop off the, per, the first part of a story and the last part of a story and all you have is a re- reduced version of the middle, then you really are missing some of the most significant stuff of not just what Jesus saved us from, but what Jesus has saved us into. And as a result of that, the way that I grew up, a lot of my friends that grew up in church lost interest in Christianity because it sort of was like only a message that came into effect when you died. 
Jesus was a get out of hell free card and all I got to do between now and then is just, I guess, not make God too mad and try to be a good person and do the best that I can so that when I die, I'll get to enjoy heaven and live there forever with God, the end. But friends, there's so much more to the story and when you take the, the essential nature of the whole story out, aka the kingdom of God, you're left with a reduced version that isn't compelling to anybody. And that's why Dorothy Sayers says this. She says, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? What I want to show you today is the significance of the kingdom of God. I want to show you how this is a narrative throughout all of Scripture and what this eventually means for how we even understand things like the Holy Spirit and a person, rather, as the Holy Spirit and his ongoing activity and work in and through the church. So let me start like this. Let me define the kingdom of God for you. And I get this is a bit of a weird sermon. This is not how we typically preach verse by verse through a text. This is more of like an overview of, of this idea of the kingdom of God. So let me define the kingdom of God for you real quickly. George Ladd defines it this, this way. The kingdom of God is a realm over which our king exercises authority. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite uh, authors says this is the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will where what God wants done is done. And then one of the most helpful definitions comes from Graham Goldsworthy. He defines the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So with those definitions in mind, let me just briefly show you the storyline of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Here's the first thing I want you to see, that the creation narrative that we have in Genesis chapter one and two is the kingdom being established. What you read in Genesis one and two is the kingdom of God being established. Now, typically when we think of heaven and earth, we think of heaven as God's space, right? And earth as our space. God lives in heaven, we live on earth. But in the beginning, that actually wasn't two distinct, disconnected spheres, that God actually created the earth, and more specifically the Garden of Eden, to be the place where heaven and earth would overlap and be connected, where God would dwell with humanity forever on the earth. That was the original plan. That was the intention. Now, in the ancient Near East, and nobody really cares about the ancient Near East, but in the ancient Near East, if you read uh, different creation narratives or learn more about their uh, concept of creation, what was fascinating is that all these different cultures like Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and other places, the kings would consider themselves to be gods. So if you're the king of Babylon, you consider yourself to be a god. And what they would do is they'd build these temple structures, these sanctuaries, where it wouldn't just be a temple or a sanctuary, it would also be a home, a palace for the king. And the last thing that the king would do after designing and building this ornate temple structure, this, this uh, sanctuary slash home for the king, is the king would take a, a graven image of himself, and he would put that graven image out front of the temple, out front of the sanctuary, so that way anyone who came close to the temple, close to the king's home, would know that this is the God that lives here. This is what they thought. This is the God or this is the king that lives here. Now, with that in mind, read Genesis 1 with some fresh eyes, thinking from an ancient Near Eastern perspective. Uh, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image 
By the way, us is not just a reference to the Trinity. I think more accurately, us is like royal language, right? Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, look at this line, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you see what's happening here? That God actually creates the Garden of Eden to be a temple sanctuary slash home, a dwelling place for God to dwell with humanity. And instead of taking a graven image of himself, he actually places humanity there as his image bears. By the way, that's why in the Ten Commandments it says don't make any graven images uh, out of God because God has already made images of himself in you and I, that you and I bear the image of God. And what that means is that we are called to represent God to the world. We're called to reflect God to the world, that God has actually created men and women, Adam and Eve, as kings and queens over the earth. And I used to think that the Garden of Eden was like a perpetual vacation, you know, a a sandals resort that never stops. And instead, what we see is that God is saying, no, I've created humanity to have dominion over the earth, to take the raw materials of the world and to, to bring my presence, to bring my reign and my rule, to bring goodness and cohesion and peace and shalom into the world. So the original intention of the Garden of Eden was to actually grow and expand over the whole world so that the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We were created to be kings and queens and rule on God's behalf. So read Genesis 1 and 2 as the creation of the kingdom of God. It's established on planet Earth. Now, you know, sadly, where the story goes, that the second thing I want you to see is the fall. And the fall, what we read about in Genesis chapter 3, is when the kingdom of God is lost to humanity. The kingdom of God is lost. You know the story, if you grew up in church, even if you didn't, you're probably somewhat familiar with it, that the enemy, the accuser, the serpent, he sneaks into the kingdom. And then he begins to tempt Adam and Eve. Specifically, Eve tempts her. She gives in, hands the fruit to Adam. And what I want you to realize is that God is not mad that humanity ate the fruit. He's not like really upset that they would reach out and eat the fruit. That that very act is even more symbolic of them saying, God's holding out on us and we actually want to transgress the, the one no that he gave us and we want to become something more powerful than we feel like God has made us. And that was the whole lies. God's holding out on you. And he knows that if you eat of this fruit, you're going to become like him. And he doesn't, he's afraid of you becoming like him. And you know, the irony is that they already were like him in the best ways. And yet they rebelled against God. They transgressed and they gave in to temptation. And friends, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion and sin, it's as if the, the keys of the kingdom that they were given were totally handed over to our enemy. And instead of the earth being covered with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, darkness and dysfunction and death and brokenness were launched out from the garden over the whole world. Now, the entire world is enemy-occupied territory. 
And when you think of sin, I want to kind of expand your definition of sin for just a minute, because often what you and I think of is that I've sinned, and really what we mean culturally is I've made mistakes. Oh, I'm not perfect. Everybody sins. Everybody make, makes mistakes. I've made mistakes, and that's maybe affected my relationship with God, and so I've got to figure out how to get right with God, right? That's what a lot of people envision. Sin is so much more damaging than that. That sin does fracture our relationship with God, and there's nothing that we can do to fix our relationship with God. He has to be the one to fix it. Sin fractures our relationship with God vertically, but here's the crazy thing about sin, is it then horizontally fractures everything else in our world. If you think back to the news cycle that you've uh, been intaking over the last seven days, there's tragedy and dysfunction and death playing out left and right in our world, and it's all because of sin. You read about school shootings and bank shootings. You read about wars in Ukraine. You read about these tragedies that are striking, or you read about you know, political divisions or all the stuff that's playing out, the economy getting wild because people are not using the gifts that God has given them and stewarding those gifts well. On and on and on we could go, but here's my point, friends, that sin doesn't just create this vertical uh, brokenness with God, but sin also unleashes corruption into our world. That's why God is against sin, because he's only for good. He's only for what's right. He's only for his reign and for his rule, because in his reign and rule, we find hope and comfort and peace. Sin breaks all of that apart. And here's what happens after that. After Adam and Eve give in to sin, there's this trajectory that you see in the storyline of Scripture where different nations, different peoples, try to essentially reestablish the kingdom, but without the king. They try to rebuild the kingdom and build a place that uh, will have power and authority and all these things, but they don't want God there, and it always leads to brokenness and dysfunction and destruction. And eventually, the people of Israel, even the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, they're clamoring for a human king to rule over them. And they start to choose different guys to become king. And, and, and without fail, every guy that they choose, even if they start out good, even if it starts to head in a good direction, ends up leading to absolute chaos and it leaves them worse off than before. So if you just read the whole Old Testament, kind of the theme that you get is that the people are clamoring for the kingdom of God. They, they feel the absence and the loss of Eden, the kingdom of God. They're clamoring for the kingdom of God. They're longing for a king, but nobody knows what to do to fix this broken world. And in the middle of that, there are a couple of other things happening, two things. One is that God makes a promise in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, he, he promises to destroy the enemy who has taken occupation on planet Earth. He says there's gonna come this baby and he, from him, he's going to crush the head of the serpent and even in crushing the head of the serpent, his heel will be bruised, he will be hurt and wounded in the process, but he's gonna destroy the enemy. And then as you read through the rest of the story, you get to places like Isaiah, and Isaiah's fascinating. Isaiah 11, God promises to raise up a king, a Messiah, somebody that's from the line of David that will be the king, the Messiah that we're all longing for, that we're all hoping for. Then you read places like Isaiah 65, and God promises to restore the earth to its original intention. So he's not just saying, I'm going to bring my kingdom back so that you and I can get the vertical stuff sorted, but also I'm gonna bring my kingdom back so that all the horizontal stuff can get sorted too. This is the promise of the Old Testament. And with all that in mind, here's the third thing I want you to see, which is redemption. Redemption is the kingdom of God breaking back into our world. 
And I want to show you the very first sermon that Jesus preaches after his baptism. This is in Luke chapter 4, so if you have a Bible, you can go there. The, wor- the words will be on the screen. So Jesus had just been baptized. He's launching his ministry. And before he does anything, before he even launches his ministry, he walks into a synagogue. Think of it like walking into a church and in the middle of a church service. And here's what we read. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Imagine if Jesus showed up to Frontline South, and he's like, I'm the scripture reader for today, right? That's what's happening in this moment. Verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and I love this, and unrolling the scroll he found the place where it was written. So Jesus intentionally unrolls Isaiah. He finds Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is an announcement about the coming king who is going to bring his kingdom back to this world and what that kingdom is gonna be like when the king shows up. He goes to Isaiah 61 and notice what it says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Paint this picture in your head. He then rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He gave it back to whoever was there. He sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Hey guys, I'm the king. I'm the king that you've been waiting for. That, that king that's talked about in Isaiah over and over and over. That, that one who is promised in Genesis 3 that's gonna crush the enemy. I've arrived. I'm here. And it's from this moment on that we read stuff like this. Matthew 4, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is saying, I'm here and I have brought my kingdom. You need to repent. Come, turn from your old ways and come to me as the king. And here's what's so beautiful, guys. From this point on, you could summarize the entire earthly life and ministry of Jesus, his three years where he was doing ministry as him proclaiming the words of the kingdom and the works of the kingdom. That what Jesus is doing is saying, here's what the kingdom of God is like, and here's what kingdom people look like, and here's how in my kingdom I've designed you to be human and how to live and kingdom ethics and all these teachings. The Sermon on the Mount is a great summary of, of what life in the kingdom is designed to be like and how you and I were actually created to live a full life of humanity, full of thriving, full of flourishing. And then, and then this is the big one, Jesus finds every place where the enemy has occupied the world and where darkness is in place, and he is completely overthrowing the enemy at every level. So he'll walk up to people who are physically sick, and he's like, in my kingdom, there is no sickness. Be healed. He walks up to people who are dead, and he ruins perfectly good funerals. In my kingdom, there is no death, so be raised from the dead. He walks up to people who are outcast in my kingdom. It's not a kingdom based on how you perform in the world and that's how you get entrance. It's a kingdom of grace. And so if you're an outcast, you're actually invited in because in my kingdom, all are welcome. Just repent and turn to the king. 
He's doing all these things to, to take his kingdom and bring it into the face of darkness. And then ultimately, friends, Jesus dies on a cross. Our king dies for his subjects that were unruly and rebellious. And it's full of irony because Jesus, even in his, his sufferings, is mocked as the king. He's wearing a purple robe. He's holding a scepter. They're beating him. But the irony is that he really is the king. They shove a crown of thorns on his head. But the irony is he really has the crown that's the most important crown. The irony is that above his head on the cross, it reads, Hail the king of the Jews. And ironically, he really is the king of the Jews. And in beautiful, powerful, sad irony, our king dies for our sin. And that does two things. He's restoring the vertical relationship with God that you and I fractured and broke, and he's restoring the horizontal dysfunction that our sin has unleashed in the world. And the proof of all of it is his resurrection from the dead, that he rises from the dead. And friends, here's how the story ends. It doesn't end in redemption, but it ends in full restoration where there's coming a day where our king will return to make all things new to wipe every tear from every eye, to, to take everything that's sad and in the words of C.S. Lewis, make it untrue. That's what Jesus is in the process of doing and will one day do when he returns. And it's easy to think that Jesus is seated in heaven right now, twiddling his thumbs and he doesn't really care. He's not active in our world. But actually, friends, the resurrection of Jesus didn't end there. It ended 40 days later when he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. And now today, Jesus is the king. And I love how Acts 1 starts. It says, hey, uh, I wrote this to tell you all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is he's not stopped. He's not done. But now what he's doing is he's pouring out the Holy Spirit on his church and you and I are, 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 are being given the gift and the presence of the Holy Spirit and now we get to participate in the reign and rule of God on this earth. We get to actually be a part of the kingdom of God. So friends, with fresh eyes, I want you to read again Acts chapter one. Look at it with me. With all that in mind, look at Acts chapter one and notice what's being said here. So... Verse six, when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? A lot of times they're get, the, the disciples are given a bad rap by preachers for asking this question. They're like, see, they still don't understand. These idiots, they're all confused. No, actually, that's not true. That's a great question that they're asking. They've been tracking with the story the whole time and they're turning to Jesus and they're saying, now that you've died and now that you've risen, risen from the dead, are you going to restore the kingdom to your people? Is this when the kingdom is gonna fully come that we read about in Isaiah? This is a great question that they're asking. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. Notice what he says. He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, it's not a bad question, but it's not yours to know right now. Verse eight, but... Notice what he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Hey, don't worry about when my kingdom's gonna fully come. Worry about the fact that I, through the Holy Spirit, am making you witnesses of the king and the kingdom that you're actually going to announce and herald the good news of this king and what he's doing to bring his kingdom into this world. And here's what's so crazy, friends. If you read Acts carefully, it just feels like exactly like the three years that Jesus lived on this earth doing ministry. They're healing the sick. They're raising the dead. There's miracles happening. 
Why? Because the kingdom of God is breaking in. So here's where we are, and I'll close with just some practical application here. Where do we go from here? Well, friends, you and I live in this really interesting place where Jesus has brought his kingdom, but it's not yet fully here. Theologians refer to it as the already, but not yet. Let me ask you this question. Is Jesus king right now? Yeah. Is there going to come a time in history when he's more king than he is in this very second right now? He's, he's as king as he'll ever be. He's king. He's, he reigns and he rules, and, and his kingdom has actually arrived. It's here on planet Earth. He brought it when he came in his incarnation. But do all people bow the knee to King Jesus right now? Not yet. Are there still places where the kingdom of darkness has its nasty clutches in our world? Yes, absolutely. It's why we have disgusting, horrible things happen constantly in our, in our lifetime. Is there still brokenness and disorder and dark? Yes, because the kingdom of God hasn't fully arrived to make all things new. And so friends, what does that mean for us? Well, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes of all time, he says, enemy occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That's what your life as a Christian is all about. A great campaign of sabotage on the kingdom of darkness. So how do we do that? Well, here's the first thing. Begin to grasp God's heart for the world. Begin to grasp his heart for the world. Friends, let this sink in. Let this sink in. The Bible's a story that starts on planet Earth and it ends on planet Earth. Never one time is the point for God to rescue us all off the planet and bring us to heaven so that we can live in heaven for the rest of our lives. That is not taught anywhere in scripture. It, yes, it is true that when Christians die, they, they, they go to be with Jesus in a place called heaven or what Jesus referred to as paradise. But eventually, friends, Jesus will return to this earth. And when he returns, he will bring those people who have died in Christ with him and he will restore his kingdom back fully to this earth. The, it says the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven is what Revelation 21 says, to this earth. The Bible is a story that starts on the earth and ends on the earth. What that means is that this world is not like the Titanic. It's not a sinking ship. And the goal of our life is to get people off the ship and row them safely to the shores of heaven. No, friends, actually the goal, the goal is to see our life on planet earth, our life here on this world as witnesses and representatives of this king and his kingdom. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, the Bible is not about the rescue of humans from the world, but about the rescue of humans for the world. And indeed, God's rescue of the world by means of those rescued humans. Second thing is, I want you to see the church as an outpost of the kingdom of God. I want you to see what we're doing here as functioning as an outpost of the kingdom of God. What we're doing as a church is not just gathering on Sundays to hear a TED Talk and sing some Christian karaoke songs and then go about our week. What we are doing is we are an outpost of the kingdom of God in the middle of kingdom darkness, in the middle of a, a, a place where the enemy has occupied territory, we are an outpost of his kingdom. And what that means is that our ethics, what we do with our sex and sexuality, what we do with our bodies, our money, our singleness, our marriage, our life, how we spend our time, all of it should mirror a different way, right? So we live in America, and thank God for America. I'm happy that I live here. I'm happy that I wasn't born in any other 
country in the world. I'm grateful to be an American. But friends, our life should actually mirror the kingdom of God more than the kingdom of America. That our vision of the good life, our ethics, should look more like the kingdom of God than what our current culture says. And I love these, these words from Karl Barth. He says, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. That's what this is all about, that we're trying to form you and train you and teach you so that you can live into the way of Jesus so that we can live as kingdom people so that we're actually contradicting the world but in a way that's full of hope and full of joy and full of promise. And in addition to that, I want you to embrace eschatological hope. And I feel like the more and more chaotic and wild our world gets, the more and more important this is. And I know that word eschatological is like super nerdy and dorky. It just simply means the, the study of the last things. What, what I want you to embrace is how the last things, how Jesus eventually returning to this earth gives us hope for the now. Friends, what that means is that we cannot become too heartbroken by our world and we cannot become too hopeful by our world either. That we live in a tension, don't we? Some of you walk around and you're so heartbroken by the world. How can you be heartbroken when Jesus is the Lord of lords and he is governing all of human history for his purposes? How can you be too heartbroken? He knows what he's doing and he's ushering all things toward that end. Also, how can you be too hopeful by our world? right? Election cycles next year. Please don't get too excited about that because I guarantee you a year after, we're still going to be a hot mess because we need a better king. We need King Jesus. Don't become too excited about our world. Let's actually hold out some hope for the return of Christ. And then finally, last thing is this should mean that you and I should become appropriately charismatic. If we really believe that Jesus is alive, if we really believe that Jesus is the king, and if we really believe that his kingdom is breaking into our world, to use Jesus' metaphor, it's like a mustard seed that's been planted in the ground and is slowly growing into a tree that's blooming into this shade that all people can, can benefit from. It's, this, it's breaking in, and it's going to continue to break in in more and more and more significant, powerful ways. Then that should absolutely change the way that we think about our Christian life. That means that when we're dealing with people who are sick in their bodies, we recognize that Jesus cares about that. And it's not my power or strength, but we can actually pray. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, sometimes God breaks in and heals people's bodies. We, we can actually minister to those who are in darkness. We can actually put our hand on evil and not in our own strength, but in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we can see the kingdom of God break in. So friends, when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit in the next few weeks, we talk about the Holy Spirit and his ongoing activity, I want you to have a vision for the kingdom of God and what it means that we have a risen, alive Jesus with, a, with brain waves right now and heart pumping through his ventricles and, or uh, uh, blood pumping through his ventricles. He's got a beating heart right now that we can talk to him and ask him of things. And that risen Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit will break into our world today. That's what I want you to see. This changes everything. So in light of that, I want to invite you, would you stand with me? If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, man, get a vision for the kingdom of God breaking in all around you. What would it look like for the kingdom of God to break into your workplace, your family, the darkness that you see in your neighborhood, the stuff going on in your own internal life that you don't know what to do with? Jesus is alive, and he is bringing his kingdom to bear on this world. 
Every week we gather and we take communion. And this is representing the body of Jesus that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. But friends, Jesus taught us that when we take this meal, this is something that we do as often as we do it in remembrance of him. And we are proclaiming the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. We're actually heralding, proclaiming as witnesses his death, his his, uh, defeat of Satan's sin and death until he comes. And so today, when you come and you receive the bread and you receive the wine, remember that Jesus has defeated Satan's sin and death and they're on their way out the door and we're actually taking this meal in hope for the return of Christ and remembrance that there's coming a day where he's gonna make all things new. If you're here today, you're not a follower of Jesus, we're honored that you're with us today. I would just say, be around and be here and please don't take this meal because this is a meal for people who have repented of sin, embraced King Jesus, are now walking with him in a new life. If that's not true of you, then it's, it's not weird for you to abstain from this meal. It'd actually be weird for you to take it. So followers of Jesus, come receive the meal, get in groups. Let's remember and have hope stirred that the kingdom of God is here and it will come fully one day. You guys are invited to come and receive.